And Jesus went on with his disciples to the village, villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, Peter answered him, You are the Christ, but who do you say that I am? And he strictly changed, charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. So as I had mentioned earlier, we are at the end of the season of Epiphany, and Epiphany is a time in which Jesus Christ is remembered and celebrated as unveiling himself to both the nation of Israel, that is the people who God had directly promised that he would send the Messiah, and also beyond that uh, revelation to Israel, Jesus Christ's revelation to all the world. And in one way, 
though all the world is not present, the apostles, who later in the New Testament will go into all the world, are present at this event, and they will carry that revelation of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. And so here we see the final, uh, re- the final uh, event that we remember and celebrate as part of Epiphany at the Transfiguration. This day is an amazing day, and it's one that for for many of us, we have probably very rarely considered what happens on this day and what it tells us both of who Christ is and what he is going to do. That is, not only when he prophesies his own death and resurrection, but also the coming of the kingdom and the judgment that takes place at the coming of the kingdom. If you were here in the Sunday School Hour, we were talking about the kingdom of God, and I want to encourage you that the kingdom of God is not pie in the sky, it is not after you die, it's not after Jesus returns in the final coming, which we remembered uh, in the Nicene Creed in our recitation today, but rather he explicitly says what the kingdom of God coming in power means. So we're going to look at some elements about that, and we're just going to... we're just take a little bit of time to really analyze what does the text say specifically about the kingdom of God. So we're going to look at these ideas in six points. Revelation that comes from heaven. We're going to look at at, uh, Peter and and the Christ's dialogue. They have a little discussion. We're going to look at the suffering which Christ predicts, the temptation which comes about by Peter. We're going to look how quickly Peter goes from A plus to expelled. We're going to look at the coming of Christ that Christ foretells. This is not the second coming of Christ. This is the coming of Christ in judgment, which we will explore in depth. That's not a new idea for many of us, but if you're a visitor, perhaps you've never considered uh, that idea. The foretaste of glory, which the transfiguration event itself demonstrates. And then finally, we're going to look at the voice from heaven, which comes uh, to once again uh, put a capstone on the... Uh, revelation of Jesus Christ, that he is the Messiah, that he is the only one who God has sent uh, to represent him on the earth. And so uh, in in that, I just want to encourage you that this is a great closing to this season of Epiphany. Epiphany is held in by these two bookends, or if you're thinking about that term that we talk about, chiasm, uh, the hamburger, right? Bun, condiments, burger, bun, right? The the, the two ends, the thing that brings it all together, if you're finishing up a course in, in school, they might call it a capstone. This is the great capstone on the season of Epiphany. We have these two events which are attended to from heaven. So these are the ways that we know uh, and, and remember and celebrate the transfiguration. Uh, it is a marvelous day. It is a, joy, it is a day filled with joy and hope. And it is a day in which we see Jesus Christ as the culmination and the focal point between heaven and earth. If you remember, we had talked a little bit about uh, Jesus when he calls Nathaniel. He describes himself as Jacob's ladder, the one on whom Nathaniel will see angels of God ascending and descending. We see that same idea present here at this transfiguration when Jesus is demonstrated in his glory. Which was, ma- uh, which was veiled for all of his earthly life. <clears throat> so, um, I just want to encourage you that this is a great celebration. This is a feast day, just like Easter, just like Ascension. This is a wonderful day. This is not an insignificant day. Um, 
It's a, it's a great thing. So Christ asks his disciples a question at the beginning of our reading today, and he says, uh, who do others say about me? What, what's the word on the street? He's basically asking them for a summary of the opinions of who Christ is. And isn't that relevant today? Everyone has an opinion of who Jesus Christ is. No one is ambivalent towards Jesus Christ when you really press the question. They've, they've either heard some things about him or they've developed an opinion, they've become bitter, or they've begun, become, you know, kind of okay with Jesus, or they're radically convinced that he is the Messiah, the only son of God who was sent into the earth to save sinners. He, he demonstrates this by asking them the question, but that question actually has another question inside it. He says, who do men say that I am? And then he moves on, okay, now that we've discussed what everyone else is comfortable with, what are you comfortable with? What do you know about who I am? He asks Peter this question, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. Now, in this uh, in this rendition of this of the account in in, in the in mark 's telling of this event, uh, Jesus does not then reward Peter for saying that, but in matthew 's version, he then says, "Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah or son of John, uh, b- because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but it was revealed to you by my Father, who is in heaven." Simon and the revelation that he has concerning who Jesus Christ is, is not of his own study or searching. It is a revelation dispensed, given. The the box opens, out falls, a revelation that Simon has. Simon didn't come to understand this because he looked at Jesus Christ and oh, well, this kind of look, I mean, you look like him, or, or considering his ministry, this is a revelation that, that was given to him by heaven. It was a grace from God. Paradoxically, though, we end Epiphany this season in which we are celebrating Jesus' uh, Jesus's unveiling to Israel with a command from Jesus himself to not tell who he is. Now, I just want to help you with this. This isn't Jesus hiding this isn't Jesus like trying to pack it in. This isn't him worried that Pandora's box has been opened. He is just simply doing something that for the circumstance at the time is uh, very appropriate. He is attempting to and, and, and does delay the time to which the final confrontation with the Jews happens before they kill him. And, and what he's doing is he has, he has many things to do in his, in his ministry of about three and a half years, and he is charging the disciples to not spread this revelation that he is the Christ until the proper time. So he's telling them, hey, don't go and, and spread this. But why is that not as big of a problem as it may seem? Because even if they went around and said, this guy is the Christ, people cannot just believe a revelation that's handed to them. The gospel being presented to other people that Jesus is the Messiah, come to die in the place of sinners, to defeat death for them, and by that, by faith in those events, raise them up to new life before God, that message which is proclaimed has to be made alive to you. It has to be dispensed to you from heaven. And the Holy Spirit is faithful to call those who God has chosen beforehand and to open up their ears and to remake their heart on the hearing of the, of the gospel. What, what we see in the exchange between Peter and Christ here is that Christ 
rewards Peter for not just having some opinion. Oh, Jesus is a great teacher. Oh, he's a great moral leader. He was a, a revolutionary. He was a major historic figure who has changed the course of events. No, he is the Christ, the son of the living God. And so likewise, if you are seeking to know this man, you cannot know him through a historical analytical framework. You cannot know him through education, through research. You must know him and you must have your eyes open by God. It is not enough for you to have an opinion that you form. You need a revelation from heaven. And that is why it is so important that as Christians, you and I carry an authentic revelation that is true and that we have the Holy Spirit in us while we're ministering to those who need to know who he is. It's vital that we are carrying the presence of God, uh, which brings about a transformation. And so in this encounter, we see a nature of salvation, but we also see a demonstration that Jesus is about to show Peter and the rest of the disciples who he is. They know, they have a little bit of, of experiential knowledge, but they're about to get a huge upgrade. Uh, <clears throat> the, Christ is the greatest prophet of all. We, we know Christ exercises three major offices. Uh, you could add a few other dimensions to that. Kinsman, Redeemer would be one. But, but the three major offices which we see in the scriptures are that Jesus Christ is a prophet, a priest, and a king. And he is the only one in the scriptures to unify and to exercise all offices, all three of those offices, uh, faithfully, and uh, even at all. There are a few times where someone like a David or an Elijah will, will offer priestly sacrifice and also be a prophet, or in David's case, he is a king, but he also sets up worship. So in that way, he is very priest-like. But no one in the scriptures executes any of the offices, all three. And also, anyone who even does any one of the uh, offices, they fail completely at some point in their life, save for a few people who just move in and out. There's a few characters, they're, they're, it's a cameo appearance, but rest assured, they are not the one through whom God has, has placed his seal. So Jesus Christ here, as the great prophet, the greatest prophet of all, foretells the greatest event to take place in all of human history, that is the suffering and death of the Son of God as the Messiah for his people and the whole world. That is the greatest event that has taken place. You may think that the greatest event that has taken place was the creation of the world. I think that is there, but it's not the greatest. It is surely not the greatest because this is the great focal point of not only time-space continuum, but also the, the universe and God's historical redemption of people. This is the greatest event, and therefore it's foretold by the greatest prophet. And, and Christ also has some consideration at work in this foretelling. He's doing this because he cares about the disciples. It says in verse 31, he began to teach that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders. Notice the extreme focus on the hierarchy of the religious system of the Jews at the time. He, Mark goes through great lengths to describe exactly who Jesus is saying will reject him. And it's important who rejects him because those are the leaders of the people. And whether you like it or not, Governmental and religious leaders rightly represent the people that they are over. It is not a, a loss to me why we have the politicians we do. They right, re, rightly represent the average population. 
And so it is a system of federalism. It is a system of representation. The elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and the Pharisees reject Christ because the majority of the nation also rejects Christ. The elders, the chief priests, the scribes, they will reject him and the Son of Man will be killed and after this three days rise again. Now this is is kind of unsettling. You and I, we're very comfortable with this idea. Our faith is built on this. The disciples, on the other hand, understood the Messiah to be the one who expels the Romans and brings about a golden age of prosperity and military might that, that David had expanded a little bit, but Solomon had let fall and then the rest of the kings afterward. The Messiah, in their eyes at the time, was supposed to be the one who delivers Israel from all of her enemies and then also brings about a full reclamation or redemption of the land which she was given. That is, all of the boundaries which which God had given to the patriarchs would be realized through this Messiah, that he would take the whole land. And so this Messiah to be killed, that is a, a radically unsettling idea. It, it would basically be in their mind that that all their hopes and dreams are ultimately futile. They're going to dash against the rocks of reality upon the death of this person. And then after that, they'll just be doing whatever. The dream will be dead. Now, this is said to them not to unsettle them, but rather so that they would have a bedrock in the person of Jesus Christ. That is, he also testifies, not only will he die, but he will rise again after three days. And what's so beautiful is that the disciples completely miss it over and over again. He says that he will die, he'll be rejected rather than received. That's not what the Messiah is supposed to be received. He'll be rejected, he won't be received, he'll be killed. And then after that, three days rise again. They, they totally miss what's about to happen, and we see this. Peter goes from knowing who Jesus Christ is to rebuking him. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I develop strategies for life. I, I develop plans and, and I put together, you know, I try to order my life. It is probably a bad idea to rebuke the Son of God at any point in your, in your plan or in how you're deciding to go about things. That's what happens. Christ, as the great high priest, lovingly teaches his disciples the secret wisdom of God, which was hidden from before all time, before all ages, as Paul brings out in all of his epistles, this secret knowledge and wisdom of God, which is wise, though it does not look wise to us. And so Peter goes from this wonderful spiritual revelation right down crashing into humanistic, demonic, fleshly, satanic understanding of, of how things should work. And we, we see that. That's not a, an extrapolation. Jesus changes the name that he uses to speak to a person. I don't know about you. I have yet to be called Satan. I'm sure I have done so, some things which were satanic or demonic, and you have too, but no one's ever to my face called me Satan. Think about being Peter at this moment. I've, I've never received a rebuke as sharp as this. This is razor sharp. He says, get behind me, Satan. That's a noun of direct address. That is scary. So Christ as this high priest is, is attempting to give them a warning beforehand so that their hearts wouldn't be troubled and that they would doubt so as to fall away. It is, it's okay to doubt. It's not 
okay to doubt so as to fall away completely. And so Christ also ex- does this in order to demonstrate the root of temptation which Peter has already bought into. Peter already bought into this idea that he should preserve his own life. We see this replay when Jesus is about to be uh, taken into custody when Peter grabs a sword and cuts off the high priest's servant's ear. A little Mike Tyson action going on here. If you don't know who Mike Tyson is, you should read Wikipedia. It's not worth watching. Peter goes after this high priest's servant because... He's saying that my high priest is better than your high priest, and he executes this fleshly warfare. And so Peter is demonstrating that he is fully bought in to this idea, and you have too. Maybe you don't buy into it now, but you have at one point. The idea is the great temptation, which is the root of all temptation, and it was the root of the original sin, that you should do something about your destiny that you need to take matters into your own hands, that you cannot trust God's plan for your life, and that not only that, you need to go against what God says and execute your own will. He says, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. Peter's desire at this point, because he's fully bought into this temptation, is that his understanding of the Messiah is right, and that the Messiah's understanding of the Messiah is wrong, and that God doesn't want his Messiah to die, but rather that he would live and do something like a military campaign. Peter is completely wrong, but he is wrong not because he had the wrong opinion, but because the ideology and the spirit and the doctrine of his opinion were wrong. It's not like he just got the answer wrong on the quiz, and if he would have studied more, he would have got it right. His whole book was wrong. He is operating in the flesh. He's participating in league with Satan at this point, and Christ rebukes him to his faith, face. Would that we would receive such hard rebukes, because if you're in need of a rebuke that precise, that clear, that knife-like, then you are in a great uh, grave danger because you are in a satanic way. This is the continuing temptation for the rest of your life, uh, is to do something about God's plan for your, your life. I'm not talking about faithful stewardship of God's revealed will, as in if you're married, God's will for your life is to be married. As in God's will is often more revealed than it is prescribed beforehand. It's, it's not as if history is written and, and given to you. There's a letter and it tells you all the major events in your life and you just kind of do everything. But in the moment, you're supposed to be faithful to God's law, but you are not supposed to take matters into your own hands. And when God does reveal his will, you're not supposed to attempt to change it. So Peter, by his own confession, is rebuking the Christ. We said that was a bad idea. Mark 8, 34 through 36, Jesus then turns from the disciples and he addresses the crowd. If anyone would, t- would come up after me, if anyone would be a Christian, paraphrasing, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his own life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Now notice, he is saying that it is a polar opposite from the opinion of man. That is, if you want to keep your life, you have to do something to keep your life. Christ says that the wisdom of God is if you want to have a life, you have to lose your life. You have to get rid of it. You have to throw it away. You have to be willing to consider it as loss. And you have to take up a cross. By the way, this is not just a metaphor. He's saying you have to take up your cross. 
A cross is an instrument of death. It's rightly understood to be an instrument of death, an instrument of being accused of being an enemy of the state, an enemy of the law. You have to be considered to be participating in a different kingdom. The cross is something that is a execution of punishment. It's a, it's a instrument of judgment that is used against those who are, who are lawbreakers, those who are enemies of, of a government that is treacherous, and it's also used for those who murder. And what Christ is saying is you have to be so thoroughly convinced by the righteousness of God's law that you look like an enemy to all the rest of the world, the culture, everything else. Jesus says at another place, if you're not willing to hate your mother, your father, your brother, sister, family, everything that you have, you cannot be his disciple. That's not for radical Christians. That's for all Christians. That's for anyone. He doesn't say if, if someone would wish to, to be an apostle, he has to take up his cross. He says, if anyone wishes to come up after me, to follow in the way that I lived, that is, that's harsh. That is, that is radical. So Jesus is demonstrating the kindness of God. He, he, there is a standard which is as high as God's holiness, and yet that is the only safe place. If you would be a Christian, you absolutely must die. You must be willing to surrender all the areas of your life to Christ's word. And having been informed by his word, you have to be committed to doing his will. You cannot just simply engage with with the word of God and then still live your, you know, acquire some religious knowledge and and learn some things, some facts about God, and then continue to run your own life. It has to be submitted. It has to follow. There's absolutely no middle ground. Uh, I don't know about you, but I've never heard of anyone being crucified partly on a cross and partly on the ground. It doesn't work that way. The reason you have are lifted up in the air is because the cross is designed to sap you of your strength over a period of hours while you in agony die. You cannot be one foot on the cross and one foot on the ground. It's just not going to work. There's absolutely no middle ground in Christ's call, and therefore it is sweet because it is real. There is no false hope in this, and there is no false claim of friendship with the world and friendship with Christ at the same time. Would that our gospel preaching have such a call? So the temptation of Satan is essentially not to trust God, but to take your life in your own hands. And isn't that what saving your life is? Doesn't that, isn't that what our culture teaches today, that you should do everything you can to maximize your happiness, to maximize your wealth, to maximize your power, your fun. That is what our age, the spirit of our age is, is to maximize everything you want, everything you, you want to have. More for your money, right? I, 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 love, I love just kind of explaining the, the depth of sin that's found in most advertisement appeal. Have you seen the one from Coca-Cola? In the, in the old, old days, Coke had some better advertisements, but I think this one's more honest to what, how they're trying to sell Coca-Cola. What is it? Coke is happiness. I don't know about you. I mean, Coke tastes good, but it's not happiness. So that's the spirit of our age. What Christ says concerning his coming in these chapters is exclusively related to the life of the people he's speaking to. And, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to assert that, and then I'm going to prove it. We don't have much time to, to go through it completely, but 
Those who are ashamed of him are not the, are those who are not willing to accept him as the Christ. He said, the elders, the scribes, the Pharisees, they will reject him. They'll be ashamed of who he is. They will not acknowledge him as the Messiah, though he is. And Christ makes it clear that this is describing his coming and his coming in judgment. This is not the same as the end of the world coming, which is prescribed uh, both in the Nicene Creed and that comes from the rest of the scriptures. But his coming, which he speaks about, is made very clear by the text itself. Verse 38, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, what's a generation? It's a group of people, a group of people who are generated, who are born. In this adulterous and sinful generation, notice he does not say, for those who are ashamed of me, comma. He says, for those who are ashamed of me and my words, where, when, in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Most of us, if you have been raised in uh, Christianity today, you think that that is talking about the second coming of Christ at the end of the age, as we understand it today, that is in the future. But I want to make clear to you, he is talking about a judgment that is about to come on the elders, the scribes, the Pharisees, and the priests. Verse 1 of the next chapter. This is an unfortunate chapter break. Matthew's chapter break is right. Uh, Matthew and Mark didn't have anything to do with where their chapters ended, just so you know that. That's not in the original text. In, in Matthew's edition, or Matthew's rendition, they decided to divide it up so that the next verse in this chapter is, is actually in, in you know, 15 verses 16. Here it's, it's actually in 9. It should be in 8 because it's a similar idea. He's continuing a thought. Verse 1 of chapter 9, and he said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Okay? There are some standing here. Now, I just want to say to you that the oldest man living in the scriptures is Methuselah, right? And he's only 900 years old. And on my watch, it says, I don't have a watch, but on my phone, it says 2015. There is no one who is standing here today who was standing there. Okay, just clear. Is that, is that clear? Okay, so he said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here, where? To the people he's speaking to, who will not taste death. Christians don't die forever, which we're about to see in the transfiguration, which I hope to get to. Uh, there are some, we had a lot of, Anyway, um, there are some standing here who will not taste death. Now, he is not talking about a physical or a spiritual reality that somehow the future Christians who will be there at the end of the age uh, in the future will are somehow spiritually present. He says standing here. I, I don't know about you. I wasn't standing there. We're not uh, Neoplatonists. We weren't existent before we were born. That's why we call it procreation, not incarnation of unborn souls or something. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death. So you have to wrestle with the words of Christ. You cannot just have these ideologies or theologies about the end of of time, the, the end of all things that's coming about in the future, and just kind of muddle everything else into that. The kingdom of God coming in power is the same as the Son of Man coming with the holy angels, And we're going to see that in Mark's version. 
Those who are ashamed are in the adulterous sinful generation. Likewise, the next verse describes that some of the disciples are going to survive. The son of man will be ashamed of those who apostatize from the worship of Yahweh. It is not right that when Jesus Christ, the son of God, Yahweh's choice to remain in Judaism as if that's a separate and yet equal branch in the worship of Yahweh. When Jesus Christ comes onto the scene, the manifestation of God's wisdom, which all of faithful Hebrew faith was leading towards and, and working forward uh, in a continuous line, it's not appropriate to remain in Judaism and, and reject the Son of God. It is apostatizing the worship of Yahweh because Jesus Christ is Yahweh. Those who apostatize the worship of Yahweh are those who reject the Christ and do not follow him. It's not as if Christianity is this fork in the road and equal, an equal opportunity decision. And, you know, whenever you get to that point as a Jew in, in this, you know, line in history, you can decide to remain, you know, a Jew and reject Jesus or follow Jesus as the true Messiah. It's not an option. And so Jesus Christ is coming and he's going to judge those who are ashamed of him. The glorified son of man will come on the clouds with the angels of God in judgment against Israel and carry out his judgment by the hands of the Romans. Now, if you are not aware of this idea, please read a book called Eschatology of Victory by J. Marcellus Kick. It is one of the greatest books I read in my life. I actually was reading it the night I met Emily in person. So it's, uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful book. Uh, maybe if you read it and you're single, you might find <laughs> your future wife. In all seriousness, if you've never heard of that idea, please read that book. It is an amazing book. And then read Matthew 23 and 24 and also Luke 20. It's very clear. The understanding is also supported by Matthew's rendition of this exact same event, which we're going to look at very briefly. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. The Son of Man coming in his kingdom, and the other rendition from Mark, uh, that is, the kingdom of God after it has come with power, are two continuous events, Pentecost and then finally, the judgment. Harmonizing these accounts, we see that the kingdom of God, which was at hand when Christ began his ministry, he says the kingdom of God is at hand. He's saying it's about to come. And then we believe, many of us, if we've been convinced by dispensational theology, we believe that the kingdom of God has been at hand for 2,000 years. But Christ says that the kingdom of God will come and some of those who he's talking to in the moment will not die before that happens. That's an interesting math problem. These are not separate events. Again, Luke 20, 21, Matthew 23, 24. It's an, it's an important thing for you to, to understand that, that God does judge those who reject the Christ. And that is done, and it's important for you to understand that because that's done as a prophetic witness to the future judgment which comes on those who reject Christ. It's not as if God has left the world without any understanding. So Jesus tells, us, tells them of these extremely heavy things, that not only is he going to die, but he will after that, well, he'll, he'll, he'll suffer, be rejected. The Jews will miss their Messiah. He will die. He will rise after three days. And then 
eventually he will come in judgment. The Son of Man will come. And then, not only that, uh, he then says that he will repay according to what each person has done. And then he, he, he says all this, he lets it settle, and he does this because he's about to go up to the mountain of transfiguration to demonstrate the authority that he has to back up these amazing claims. This is an amazing claim if you're thinking like the disciples, that the Messiah is going to be rejected rather than received, that he's going to die rather than live, and that he's going to actually come and judge, and he's going to come with a judgment that comes from heaven. Mark, <clears throat> Mark 9, 2 through 3, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, led them up to a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Bleach is, is very powerful. Bleach cannot do everything. And what Mark is attempting to demonstrate through these words that, that Jesus, Jesus Christ's clothing became extremely white so as no one could bleach them is he's trying to say that the glory which Christ has in himself is not a humanly, it's not a human glory. It's not a natural glory as if we could replicate it. And we know rightly from the scriptures that robes or clothing always talks about righteousness. That is, the righteousness of Jesus Christ cannot be replicated by human effort. It cannot be achieved through your own righteous attempts to come before God. The worth and excellence and purity of Jesus Christ, that is, how supremely valuable he is, is demonstrated that he is glorified with amazing amounts of light. Not only that, but we see two important figures who come and are present with him. Moses and Elijah are seen with Christ, demonstrating the true authority of Christ that such a visitation would take place for his sake. This isn't, Jesus isn't just a no, another human. He's just not an average guy. And so these two, Moses and Elijah, appear with Christ and they talk with him. I've heard some people say that Moses and Elijah were not truly present, but rather it was a visitation. I don't know about you, but visitations don't speak. They don't talk and converse with a non-visitation, Jesus. And so these disciples are seeing this take place. And surely all the commentaries agree that Moses and Elijah are speaking with Christ and they're speaking about, with Christ about what's going to happen in the future, namely his suffering and then his rising. And so here, the disciples are hearing Moses and Elijah and, and the Christ engaging in this discussion, backing up this great demonstration, this great promise that Jesus Christ is going to suffer. And so Elijah and Moses are symbols of the law and the prophets. That is, Moses is the law and Elijah is a symbol of the prophets. And these two are here and present to say that Christ is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, that he is the one who gives uh, uh, fulfillment, uh, finality. He's the one who sums them up. And so there's all this light, there's all this glory, and Jesus is transfigured. Uh, uh, some, some translations use the word metamorphized. But here, Jesus Christ is demonstrating the glory that he has to back up the great claim of suffering, resurrection, coming judgment. Where do we see Jesus Christ again glorified? Revelation chapter 1. What does Revelation chapter 1 end with? It ends with Jesus Christ after having been demonstrated with robes of white, a golden sash, uh, something you know affixed on his head, a belt, and hair that's white like wool, eyes that are full of fire. 
extremely terrifying. He then, end, chapter one of Revelation ends with, I will show you the things which what? Must soon take place. The demonstration and glory of the worth of the Son of God is to give credence to the claim that he is not only the Messiah, but he will die, he will be resurrected, and he will judge. So much of our warning of people is just uh, of just them, you know, you won't go to heaven when you die, but rather you would go to hell. And that's true, but the warning that's not backed up with that Jesus Christ is the one who is the judge that warning has very little teeth. It's got no bite to it. Jesus Christ is backing up his warning. So their presence shows us that God is not a God of the dead, but of the living. When Jesus says the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, he rebukes the Pharisees for not believing in the resurrection, not believing in the coming judgment. And he then says, well, rather the Sadducees, the Pharisees believe in the resurrection, excuse me. Uh, Christ then says, God is not a God of the dead, but of the living. And so Moses and Elijah, these aren't phantasms. These aren't ghosts. Moses and Elijah are spiritually there. They're really there. They're not resurrected nor glorified, although Elijah retained his body. He was taken into heaven. Moses' body, according to the book of Jude, uh, there was a war with... It it takes a long time to get into. Anyway... um, just as the season of Epiphany opens with the baptism and Christ's voice, or sorry, God, the Father's voice speaking from heaven, thundering as it were, some people said it thundered, thundering from heaven, this is my beloved son, listen to him. It also ends. So it, it begins and ends. We talked about bookends, hamburger buns, whatever you want to think of it as. It's it's encapsulated. It's set in. There are boundaries. There, there is a context there's meat, there's weight. There's a structure which we can build on and understand that the revelation of Jesus Christ to the nation of Israel in his miraculous signs and wonders, his physical healings, his deliverances from demons, which were plaguing people in Israel, and also his extremely wonderful, merciful, gracious teaching, which is ultimately with, without which we would have no revelation, Uh, Those things are hemmed in with this understanding that he is the son of God. If you approach Christ as the miracle worker without understanding he's the son of God, you have nothing. If you approach Christ and just want his teachings, love your neighbor as you love yourself, without understanding that he is the one who has the right to not only tell you that, but also judge you as to whether you followed that, then you have nothing. And so Jesus Christ is coming to save, but that is based on the foundation of who he is. In both accounts, the voice of the Father thunders. It's it's an explosive sky-splitting event. And here the Father testifies about Jesus Christ's uh, authority. A cloud overshadows them. I I rightly believe that's the Holy Spirit creating uh, a scene of glory. If you look at the holy place, the, the priest has to... Uh, incense and create a cloud. If you look at Revelation, there's a cloud. Here, the Holy Spirit uh, is again creating a cloud. We saw this in Exodus. We saw this on the mountain. There's a cloud and a voice comes from the cloud and it says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. That means take his warning to heart. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. We're not going to discuss in great depth what Peter does, but Peter basically says, Lord, it's right for us to be here. Peter (laughs) forgot that Christ chose them. 
<laughs> he's he's saying we're glad we're here. Well, it was it was good for you to you know he's can like as if Jesus needed confirmation. And then he says this weird thing: let us make some tents. Or another understanding is booths, but it's not as if they're going camping for a while. He's he's trying to say we should set up pillars, monuments of this event, as if. Peter wanted to kind of camp around that revelation of Jesus because it was glorious. But the revelation that was glorious was done to back up a claim of a suffering which was inglorious, which was terrible, which was horrific. And so Peter wants to camp around the high times with the Lord, but he's unwilling to go to the cross. We see that play out. Keep that in your heart when we get to Easter. It's, well, Good Friday. It's, it's an amazing scene. With the glory of the Spirit overshadowing, the voice from heaven comes and gives credence to the warning that Jesus has that he is going to not only suffer, die, but also come and judge. And in hearing this truth that Christ prophesied, they understand that it's not the word of a man, but rather the word of God. He is the Son of God who comes with a message from God. In the transfiguration, we see the beautiful and glorious wisdom of God. We not only see it in the details of the story, that there is light, that there is glory, that there is Moses and Elijah, that there is this amazing terror which takes uh, over the hearts of the disciples who are, you know, they're, they're these young men full of strength and vigor. That isn't the only thing that's glorious. The glorious thing is that God is by Christ demonstrating his wisdom rather than man's. That's what's truly glorious. Christ sees the Father's will as glorious. Christ beholds the message, the, the call, the, the commandment, the commission that God gives him as glorious, yet Peter wants to preserve his life. Peter, the way he sees, it's earthly, it's fleshly, it's demonic. And he wants to preserve his life, but Christ sees that the true glory is in following God. The transfiguration shows us not only the glory of Christ, but that our perspective is often flawed. We think if you want to save your life or if you want to have a life, you have to save it. You have to make it. You have to do something about it. Yet according to God's standard, God's wisdom, if you want a life, you have to lay it down. And luckily, that's what's happened. And the transfiguration is the foretelling of this event. Instead of saving your life, you have to give it up. Instead of running away from the cross, you have to embrace it. That's not optional. If you want to follow Jesus Christ, you have to embrace your cross. Everything in your natural understanding of a cross is wrong. And yet, that is the only way that God's will is revealed. Thanks be to God, because Christ did, not, did what we could not do. He understood the Father's will and took up his cross in order that we would be able to take up ours. It's not that Christ went to the cross so that you didn't have to. Christ went to the cross so that you can. And that's a very different view of what we normally think when we come to Christ. We come to Christ mostly to remedy the ills in our life, but the greatest ill in your life is that you still want to keep your life. But the only true road of freedom is to give it up. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for the wisdom of God, which is contrary to the wisdom of man. Lord, even considering these things, we know that our natural mind, our flesh, wars against this idea that we should give up our life before you. Lord, we thank you for the glory which Jesus demonstrated by being transfigured. 
Lord, also the glory which he prayed about in John 17, that he was glorified with the same glory that he had with you in going to the cross. Lord, we thank you for the hidden wisdom of God, which has been made manifest through the cross of Christ. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen.